right, well, welcome to the Integral Stage and to part two of Rethinking Religion. And I'm here with two sages from Toronto, uh, John Verveke, a cognitive scientist and the philosopher of the meaning crisis, among many other things, and Lehman Pascal, my partner here on the Integral Stage, and as he prefers to be known, uh, just a guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As we finished our last dialogue, uh, we touched on a few things that we maybe wanted to continue with in this talk. And John suggested that we look into the question of the absolute and the relative and their relationship and maybe mm -hmm. uh, some related themes, uh, transcendence and things like that. You know, that how we, how we hold the absolute and relative is going to impact you know, how we relate to the world and, and to our projects, but also to you know, people with authority, um, teachers and, and politicians and things like that. So there's a lot to get into there. And speaking of teachers, I had mentioned that I also wanted to get into a few more exemplars of what I think is the, the burgeoning religion that's not a religion or an integral post-metaphysical spirituality. So. I'll put that as a second thing down the line if we have time to get to that. I think there's a lot to get into just with the absolute and relative. Uh, but to get us rolling, I want to offer one framing, and then I'll kind of turn it over to you to offer your own framings, and then we can see where it goes. Um, what I wanted to start with is something from Wilbur. He offers both, uh, you know, kind of a, a distinction and an argument, which are maybe a little bit controversial, but I think are a fruitful place to start. And he notes a distinction between two currents in Western philosophy, between the ascending current and the descending current, the ascenders and the descenders. The ascenders are focused on the transcendent, the absolute, the one, and they tend to be world denying or world denigrating, body denigrating. Uh, and really focused on, on that which is unchanging and absolute and constant. And then the descenders are focused more on relativity and the many and the worldly and the embodied and sensual and multiplistic, right? And so in recent ecological, uh, you know, spirituality um, and, and philosophy, uh, deep ecology, things like that. There's been a tendency to characterize the modern enlightenment project as an ascender path, as really focused on disembodied rationality. But Wilbur argues that actually the enlightenment project is more of a descender path. It's a, more ensconced in, uh, you know, obviously a worldly orientation, but its truth is, you know, to be is to be an object that is understandable and manipulable by science. And so he calls that an industrial ontology, or sometimes he calls that a flatland, flatland thinking. And he then argues that unwittingly, uh, some of the modern ecological spirituality, deep ecology movements are participants in that industrial ontology. They're still actually carrying forward some ideas from the Enlightenment, um, and that he would argue haven't properly interrogated the distinction between relative and absolute um, or problematized the way that they're framed. And so 
I think that's one thing that we could look at is, is at least the tension between ascending and descending paths. And maybe is there some kind of new framing or reconciliation that could be achieved or a new perspective that can be taken on that. Um, and then one other element I wanted to bring in is Paul Ricoeur and his notion of second naivete. Uh, after the death of God and, and the, the modern kind of dismantling of religious myth, there's been in the last 50 to 60 years kind of a, a proposed return to religion and the instantiation of a kind of, you know, uh, second naivete. And so we can then pick up again the myths and the ancient narratives and some of the narratives around miracles and things like that, but all mostly understood metaphorically. And there's a, there's, there's a, a value in this and there's a, 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 you know, a deep utility in that, but there's also the possibility that that can continue on with a flatland orientation where again, it doesn't interrogate the distinction between absolute and relative appearance and reality, transcendence and descending. Uh, if it wants to treat everything spiritual only in a psychologized way as just a poetic way of talking about stuff that we already know from psychology or whatever, without leaving room for kind of a numinous excess that, that spirituality would attune to, even if we're not going to move in the direction of uh, the, the mythological conceptions of the past as a post-metaphysical orientation would not want to do. So um, those are some distinctions that I wanted to offer. I think there have been some proposals both historically and more recently uh, for reconceiving the relationship between the relative and the absolute. And I hope that we can get into exploring and talking about some of those moves. Um, but before we go any further, I wanna turn it over to both of you and to uh, get any of your responses to what I just shared, but also your own uh, framings and intuitions for, for where this conversation can go, what you'd like to look at. If you'd like to go first, John? Sure. Wow, you said you said a lot, <laughs> Bruce. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, I want to address. I'll, I'll try and address both those concerns in a in an integrated manner because I don't think they should be dealt with separately. So, on, on the matter of sort of the absolute and the relative, um, I guess for me, my place is like post Heidegger, post Wittgenstein, which is trying to get beneath the cultural cognitive grammar of the two worlds. And there's various ways you can do the two worlds, but the tip, you know, the absolute is usually above and the relative is usually below and the relative is in some way illusory or decadent or fallen or uh, not, not as real or something like that. And then the absolute is really real. And then the problem with that, ultimately, there's two problems and they reinforce each other. One is you get a deep dualism, which then just cuts into human beings in all kinds of ways. So mind gets separated from body, like, and all that kind of stuff. Or else you get the disappointed dualism of Nietzsche, which is, well, there is no upper world, right? But uh, what do we do? What are we left with? And how can we see the, this earth as not just the shadow of the absolute? But all he tends to do, this is Heidegger's critique, is just invert everything 
uh, from the two worlds mythology. He just, you know, what, what you thought was bad, it's really good. And you know what we thought was good, that's really bad. That's sort of the Nietzschean move throughout uh, at least some readings of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is notoriously difficult to pin down uh, because he says 17 things that are not consistently held together. But that has been one way in which Nietzsche has been taken up. And the problem with that is we're still bound into a particular way of thinking that keeps either cutting us in half or disappointing us by some felt lack, right? We're we're either in the rain shadow or we're severed from ourselves in some deep and profound way. And those two um, reinforce each other because when you have the dualism, that is the breeding ground in many ways for what, well, Ricoeur calls the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is that appearances distract, distort, uh, and delude us and prevent us from seeing uh, the really real, something like that. And the problem with the hermeneutics of suspicion is if it gets um, integrated with sort of disappointed dualism, you get a very, very powerful kind of nihilism, a very, very powerful kind of nihilism. And then what you can do is you can try and fill the lack uh, with something uh, like power, uh, because for sort of Machiavellian reasons, power presents itself as the only viable reality within the hermeneutics of suspicion. It's not a consistent position, but somehow it seems intuitively, well, power is real. Everything else should be suspected, but not power. Um, I'm not clear. Uh, that Heidegger made that point. Well, like, you, why don't you doubt power as well, right? That uh, should be subject to the hermit. Uh, well, because that's people's true motivation is the will to power, Nietzsche again. And so those things, to, to my mind, all fit together. You get the you get the valorization of power, and of course, technocracy and and technology as our surrogate god, the limping god, and we get a disappointed dualism, a hermeneutics of suspicion, and behind it all. Uh, a nostalgia, but the nostalgia would take us back into a kind of uh, rivening, you know, cleaving of ourselves from the world and from uh, each other and even mind and body from each other. So I regard that whole framework as so radioactive and toxic that attempts to reformulate it, I, I think, are doomed. Now, I don't have a closure argument. I don't have, look, Here's premise A, it's indubitable. Here's premise B, it's indubitable. And notice how they indubitably lead to this conclusion. Um, there are people that believe they can go back and work with the machinery that's there in some way. And, and I, I respect that. I think there are gems to be saved. There, there, there are living processes to be accepted. I totally believe that. But I don't think we can go back. And so to get to the point... <laughs> <laughs> that's why I propose a religion that's not a religion. I think that insofar as all the existing religions are bound into that radioactive framework, they can't help us. They will degenerate us as much as they will heal us. Again, I want to be clear. I know individuals and small groups can return to the established religions and find what the, the, a way to cultivate wisdom and self-transcendence. And I don't want to trespass on anybody's sincerity and authenticity. I'm not presuming. I just find it very difficult to know how that could be thorough without bumping into all of this toxicity that I've mentioned. And so I'm 
hoping to see a way of seeing religion that is not through that convoluted framework. And for uh, I think we've been looking at religion for millennia through that framework, so it's hard to see religion as anything else than that. And so that's why I, I do this paradoxical thing, the religion that's not a religion, which is trying to in some way function the way religion has done in the past about this, uh, about the absolute and the relative, right? Uh, about affording people self-transcendence and deep connection, but not, but as much as possible trying to extricate ourselves from that whole framework without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, it's, it's a very, very hard problem. I suspect that I'm not capable of uh, resolving it, um, but I'm hoping that I will do my best and encourage others to do their best so that a real solution emerges. So about the ascending and descending, yeah, that's why I'm fascinated by ne late Neoplatonism, Eregenia, especially where these two things are seen as completely interpenetrating. And I think that's the emerging metaphysics that is emerging out of science, although scientists don't recognize it yet. But I don't think, just to be clear, I don't think we can go back to ancient Neoplatonism any, any, way, any more than we can go back to anything, neither nostalgia nor utopia, right? We need something like a post-nominalism, fully recognizing science form of uh, Neoplatonism, perhaps, as, as the Silk Road, the intellectual Silk Road for what I'm, what I'm trying to call the courtyard of discourse rather than the court, uh, courtroom of debate. And so I think one of the, the main jobs of the religion that's not a religion would be to dispose the furniture and the atmosphere of the courtyard such that a truly pluralistic and vital dialogos is, is reliably afforded. Sorry, that was quite a bit, but you said a lot, Bruce. You put a lot on the table. <laughs> My fault. I, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're just, we're opening up a lot of pathways here. Um, how do we escape absolutism without falling into relativism? I, I mean, that's a great prompt because it provides the, the two ends of the reciprocal adjustment process. We would need to get some better optimal grip on this. Yeah, and the way I think about virtue is, uh, you know, an actionable, coupling of two or more basic values. So I'm thinking, what's the specific virtue that's alive here at the non-reductive convergence point of, on the one hand, the clarity and power that attracts us to absolutes, and on the other hand, the sensitivity and accuracy that makes us interested in relativistic approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just trying to feel my way into that. I have a kind of an ontological argument about what this might correspond to in the structure of things and how we could undermine the classic philosophical dichotomy uh, in a way in which the, the problem is not the absolute and the relative, but the absoluteness of the distinction. And so how do we um, clarify not quiteness in a way that is structurally sound and more precise than the usual contrast between absolute and relative, and in a way that would help us um, retro-engineer and revalidate past practices and re-inhabit the old world religious forms, although not be confined to that. I think that a lot of this, though, is not philosophical and conceptual, but is emotional, psychophysiology, shadow material, you know, the stuff in a person in their way of comporting in the world that enables or impedes their ability to 
occupy the position from which this virtue would be demonstrated. So when we're thinking ascending and descending, you know, what is breaking the microcosmic orbit, so to speak, right? Something is causing premature ascenders, <laughs> but it's also causing um, an embodiment that isn't deep, that laps verticality and has only an empty imaginary version of the ascendant. Uh, and I don't think it needs to be that way. I think a lot of that is just how we occupy our own bodies and feelings in space. And if we were more stable, more grounded, more healthy, more balanced, we would be able to even undertake a hermeneutics of suspicion without being disappointed, right? Turn that around. There's a way of theorizing power that makes it almost identical to value and the increase of value over larger spans and longer ranges of time. And I think that's, that's the hint provided by Nietzsche's dance, right? Nietzsche not as disappointed, but Nietzsche as post-metaphysical non-dual evolutionary mystic, which is the reflection of myself that I read into him, but that's what <laughs> I like. Um, and I also have some thoughts maybe on how this all affects our ability to correct the hemispheric imbalance to which McGilchrist is pointing. So uh, those are all my starting places. <laughs> I'm just going to get that off my chest so I can be fresh in this discussion. <laughs> Great. I like that you brought in the importance of the emotional dimension of that. And I, I want to talk a little bit later about uh, David Michael Levin and some of his ideas and some of his proposed practices, um, which will get into some of that uh, pathos and feeling dimension of the shift. One place I wanted to start, there are a lot of exemplars for people who have tried to renegotiate this relationship between absolute and relative and uh, one is uh, Hart Shorn, a uh, famous interpreter of Whitehead, and he challenges the idea. Often the absolute and relative are, are treated symmetrically, and he argues that there's not an interchangeability or there's not a symmetrical relationship. There's an asymmetrical relationship, and in fact, it's the the, the absolute usually is held to be the the, the big encompassing thing. And then the relative is the less real, and and he inverts that in a way, uh, and he does some other moves that it's not quite just an inversion, but part of the move is an inversion where he says, you know, the relative is the concrete, and you always find the absolute within the relative, never apart from the relative. You always find the abstract through the concrete, and he he starts from experience and basically says. Starting from experience, we find that the absolute is always something that is abstracted out from the concrete and the relative in one way or another. Um, he makes a distinction between what he calls A terms and R terms. So like for relative terms, it's relative, dependent, becoming, subject, effect, you know, contingent, and A terms like absolute and independent being, object, cause, and necessity. And he would say the inclusiveness of an A term within an R term means that the contrast between them is itself included in the R term. And he calls that the principle of inclusive contrast. And so, yeah, if you can only find the absolute and the relative, objects only in subjects, causes only in effects, being only in becoming, abstract only in the concrete, the necessary only in the contingent, that, that, shifts, that shifts our whole relationship to these things. Uh, so 
I don't know if you're familiar with the distinctions that he makes, um, but he's trying to draw uh, or take a, a kind of a middle way between some philosophical moves which tend to re reduce everything just to the R terms or to the relative, or other moves which reduce everything to the absolute. And uh, he's trying to find a middle path there. And we can get into some of the details of what he's doing, but um, I thought he provides a, a good example of an attempt to renegotiate those, those lines. Uh, one, one thing I would add in there is, uh, you know, somebody like Graham Harmon also kind of critiques this move either towards overmining or undermining. And I think that's similar to the move towards, you know, reducing everything to A terms or R terms. And again, he's trying to find that uh, path in between. One of the ways he does it is with this concept that he calls surrelativism. Um, but I'll, I'll come back to that later. I just want to stop with this for now. I am familiar with Hartshorn and I am familiar with uh, the, the general sort of Whiteheadian framework. I, I guess the, the, uh, the difficulty I would have with, I mean, first of all, I, I'm, I admire and appreciate the effort. I don't, I'm not trying to be dismissive. The, the, I guess I see the problem harder, <laughs> maybe is that's what I'm going to say. Uh, because what ultimately ends up happening is, I mean, this is clear in Whitehead, you get an, uh, a final prioritization of actuality over potentiality. Uh, that's that that that's what drives his argument for the existence of God. Uh, that the forms as the governing patterns of possibility must exist in something that's actual, um, and that means he tends to prioritize emergence over emanation. I take it that's out what that's what raw creativity is, which is the most primordial entity in. And, and I guess the, the problem, I, I read a lot, uh, quite a while ago, um, a, a book by Katz, The Metaphysics of Meaning. Um, and he made an argument, but he didn't follow it the way I, I would have wanted. He was doing something else. But I, I've been very impressed by this argument. Um, I find an equivalency of arguments for the prioritizing of emergence over emanation and emanation over emergence. Uh, here's where I, I'm like a classical skeptic. I get an I get an isothenia, a balancing of arguments. I can't I can't for every argument that prioritizes emergence. I can give you I think an equally good argument that prior, prioritizes uh, emanation. And then secondly, each one seems to have uh, unsolvable problems. Emergence set never seems to get to normativity, and emanation never seems to get to causation. And those are the two big. How do these? How do these? How do these normative principles actually contribute to the oomph of the world, where one billiard ball knocks another? And how does all this emergence get up to the? I mean, this is Plato's point. How does it always get up to the perfection that we find within our normative structures, our normative judgments, right? Where and where does that norm? How does that normativity emerge? So I see the problem um, that. These are the two things I take. They're sort of meta-theoretical points, which is I see a complete balance, a complete symmetry between emergence and emanation, and I, I see insufficiency in both of these, that emergence will always be insufficient and emanation will always be insufficient. And so I'm trying to understand what it would be like to take that as the starting point, which is much more problematic that there's a kind of irresolvable tonos 
or, or tension that can't finally be resolved. Now we should, we should try our best. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not condoning intellectual laziness at all here, but that's what I mean when I, I don't, I don't disagree with anything Hartsword said, but I, uh, I can give you, I think an equally good argument as to, uh, you know, DC Schindler that, uh, uh, the absolute must always include the relative, or it's not the absolute. And so, the, we we the relative is actually a way in which the absolute discloses itself. And then he and he, I think, quite rightly says that's how we can challenge the hermeneutics of suspicion. And I, I like this argument because what we have to say is no, no. And this is a part that you know Marlowe Ponty makes, and Hegel makes, and Wittgenstein makes. And they all come to it at some point where they say, you know, the final thing is. You can only say one thing's an illusion in contrast to something you take to be a reality, right? And so it can't be the case that appearances to core, right, in total are deceptive and distractive and distorting and distracting because the hermeneutics of suspicion is absolutely, actually, is actually dependent on the hermeneutics of beauty. Instances where appearances disclose reality as, as opposed to blinding us from it. And so this is Marlo Ponti's point, go into the guts of your experience and that's what you find. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to a place where I don't prioritize either one of the vectors. And I, I, I guess this is just, I'm sorry, Bruce, maybe this is circular. This is me trying to say, I want to somehow, I want to do what Heraclitus did, you know, with the ascenders and the descenders. Heraclitus said the way up and the way down are the same way. It was one of these things that he likes to do, right? And, and, and there, any attempt to prioritize one or the other, I think falls prey to this isothenia. Any attempt to have one without the other falls prey to the fact that they're both insufficient. And so I guess I want to be more radical. Um, I would. I, I want to be more radical than Hartshorn in that way. I want to. I want to push on. I think this is a very. <laughs> sorry, this sounds wickedly pretentious. Who am I, and where am I standing to say this? I think reality is more problematic, and, and so let me give you one way, another way in which this plays out, just to try and make it a little bit more convincing. We have these two radically different senses of realness. One is that which confirms and makes intelligible. And the other is that which surprises us and smashes things open, right? Can I offer one short interjection, Lamy? Please, please. Yeah, I, 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 prob I probably oversimplified hard, so I, uh, I, uh, but go ahead, please. Oh, no, I just wanted to actually offer a, a you know, comment of appreciation about what you just did. Um, I also see value in that, that dual holding contradictory identity, <laughs> you know, Nishida kind yeah. of. Yeah, yes, oh. very much. So I, I see value in that. And that I think our time kind of has called for the revaluation of the relative in a sense. And, and partly, you know, Panikar holds this as what he calls sacred secularity. He's also holding them together. Yeah. And yeah. you've got to be able to think in both directions because the, the, the clue here is that Hartshorn says, if you start from experience, then, and then he unpacks that whole thing, but you don't have to necessarily start from experience and then unpack. That's not the only starting point. Yes. Right? So you can hold both of them, but I think our time has needed to, to kind of like fully rest away from some of the inherited baggage of, of traditional theology and, and um, onto, 
theology, all of that, that we, we've needed to be able to recover a sense of the sacred within the mundane and to read, uh, you know, not just to make the mundane, the disappoint part, the aspect of disappointed dualism, but to be able to find the sacred within it. But then again, if, if you're really thinking deeply, you can't just settle in one place. So I agree with the move you made. Yeah, I like Maximus's phrase where he said, when he's talking about God, he says, uh, God is in all things, but not enclosed. God is beyond all things, but not excluded. And I, I like he, I, that. That sort of tastes the best in my mind as to what I'm trying to uh, trying to point to. Uh, and I think what you're talking about with something like a sacred secularism is, is exactly that. But I, I want to hear what Layman has to say. Yeah, I think there's a you know there needs to be a combination of a more precise thinking that's been given to us in the last little age of humanity with an emotional conversion that refills that lack as a presence. Mm. And so the, uh, I think what's really been interesting about people that want to prioritize becoming over being is that they might be giving us a more precise description of the nature of being. Like if you put being as a subset of becoming, and then you go, okay, that's very interesting, but that still has to be uh, the potential for that shape is ubiquitously afforded prior to the activity of that. So there's something like a platonic syntax of reality that allows that. So you yeah. say, okay, well, that's the shape of the emanation. That's the shape of the thing that emanates. It, we just have to describe it as being nested within becoming. That's how being looks. Yeah. So there's a, there's a move there where you take that specification, you emotionally flip it and allow it to do the job of its reciprocal. And I think, you know, when we think there, there is, it's not just us, there's a formal undecidability between emergence and emanation, mm -hmm. right? And because it's formally undecidable, we have to get to a position where we say, oh, that's the structure I was looking for. I'm not actually looking for one or the other. I'm looking for the structure of that formal undecidability, yeah. right? Yeah. They make that move in physics. The, um, incomplete ability to determine the difference between position and momentum yep, yep, is, yep. is a useful calculable function of reality. Reality includes functions of that kind. And so should philosophy and religion. You can't get all the way to either because in fact, the, the parallax is primary. And when we accept that and undergo an emotional conversion, then the parallax is divine. And not just divine in a conceptual sense, but divine in an imaginally extended and embodiable and altered state sense as well. Mm -hmm. I think that was very well said. Thank you. Yeah, and I agree. I think, I think the physics is bumping up against that, um, and, and and our desire for a complete formalism or a complete dynamicism. Um, uh, we're, we're realizing that yeah, there's there's a there, there's a final undecidability. Um, but I think what the, the, the move that you made is one I'd like to open up on and then it, what, hopefully uh, uh, give space to Bruce for this, um, which is this idea of, well, first of all, that, 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 that move itself, that move to accepting, right, the unformalizability, the undecidability, um, there's many ways in which people are talking about that, right? Um, I'll, I'd just like the Greek term tonos because it means tension, but it, it has a creative aspect to it. It's like, it's all through Heraclitus. And um, so the move you made though, was the one about 
I don't know quite if emotional is quite the word. I, I, th- I think I want something that doesn't exclude the emotional, but it's beyond it. I think it's something more like a, like a Kierkegaardian existential mode of right relationship to this. Like how, how, like maybe how should we comport and dispose our cognition, our affect, our motivation, um, our aspiration towards this fundamental feature? Something like that is, I think, uh, you know, how do we have right relation? How do we have right relationships so that religio to that, to that, that which is not a that. <laughs> I'm going to end up talking like Zen monks here. Um, how do we, how do we do that in a way? that um, is reliably realizable for people at many different scales. Because, I mean, th- that has been one of the ongoing and I think correct, although I think it would modify critiques of my proposal for the religion that's not a religion, it's ultimately elitist, blah, 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 it won't scale. I have my, I have my doubts about whether or not any of the religions actually scale. We've talked about this before, uh, wh- whether or not, you know, uh, grandma's note to use their metaphors, whether grandma's notion of Christianity and Thomas Aquinas's, sorry, grandma's notion of God and Thomas Aquinas's notion of God are actually the same God at all. Um, or are they just, are we just relying on equivocation of terms, a plight equivocation of terms? But let's say that, and I think it is, it's do this. I mean, it is do this respect. Let's say there is legitimacy to that. So the question is, how do we enter into right relationship with that, which in a sense, um, is right really challenging to our cognition. I mean, and we see physics still wanting to try and resolve these things in some way. People keep, keep trying to resolve them. How do we, like, how do we get into right relationship to this thing that undermines any attempt at cognitive closure, but resists any attempt at cognitive dismissal? We can't close on it, but we can't dismiss it. How do we enter into right relationship, that full existential mode, including emotion, but including disposing of all of our faculties, if you'll put it that way. How do we do that in a way that's properly scalable? And so this reminds me of the quote from my life that I took from, uh, from Camus, uh, The Plague, where Teru says, um, I want to know how to be a saint without God. That's the whole problem I'm up against these days. I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing, but it's like, I want to know how to get into right relationship to this so that I properly find it sacred when in very many ways it undermines most of the ways in which we have tried to stabilize the sacred to ourselves. Did that make sense of the question? It does. And I I love the question. And uh, it brings up for me one of the exemplars I wanted to talk about, which is uh, David Michael Levin. And Mm -hmm. he's more philosophical than practical. So, uh, but he does have some ideas about practice uh, that I, I think are relevant to a religion that's not a religion. Um, but your, your emphasis on comportment and what's that which has a, an emotional valence but transcends it and you know, what's the right orientation. I think in his project, he has looked at how each of our senses interrelate mm. with the world and how they participate historically in, in certain inherited modes. And we have a kind of subject-object mode that we currently see through. I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw from some stuff from his book on opening a vision and his, his inquiry into to contemporary nihilism uh, and, and basically the loss of meaning in our time. Mm-hmm. And it, it, he traces it in part to 
this subject object split and, and the, you know, Heideggerian, you know, framing of, 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 you know, kind of like how we perceive and participate in the world. And there's been this sundering of our proper participation in the world. And yes. there's a whole thing we yeah. can unpack. I don't need to say it because you've got like 40 hours or <laughs> yes. hours about that. Right. So, yeah. um, but can we deeply inquire into our mode of seeing that yeah. opens yeah. up new possibilities yeah. and one of you know he he uses one of Heidegger's terms glass and height you know yes. to be able to to see in a new way in a more participatory yes. way yes and one of the practices he talks about as a practice of the self is crying crying mm -hmm. for a vision and that we we relate, you know, to things at hand. We relate to the whole as a totality in metaphysical ways, but we're we're not deeply participant with reality. And he would say that crying is, you know, when you experience real deep tears, that's a kind of seeing that's a not seeing. There's mm -hmm. this it 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 deep, you know, it interrupts vision for the time being, but it's an immersion in the deep felt participatory realization and seeing of one's condition mm -hmm. and one's relationship. And it's in that undoing that, that there's a cleansing that can happen, that new vision becomes possible, that the seer of the whole is you, it's not the whole arrayed out there. The that, that that's not the authentic whole, and you know, as Bortoff would talk about it, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that you find the whole, you know, in the intertwining, right? And mm -hmm. it's in that that experience of crying that you can begin to intimate our participation in the whole in a new way, mm -hmm. and to see both the implication of our mode of being in in the loss of meaning and the nihilism and the destructiveness that's been taking place as well as possibility to, to, to pause and to enter into a different receptive participatory mode of seeing the world in Galassenheit in mm -hmm. that, that uh, you know, there are spiritual practices to train Galassenheit, you know, the Shine practice from Tibet and, and things like that. But, he would say that the crying conceived as a practice of the self, it's not something that you can artificially approach. Yeah. But yeah. It's something that is a, uh, you know, a kind of a prep, it's a threshold kind of thing that can open you up into new seeing. And just an example here, Joanna Macy has written about, you know, kind of intellectually about the relationship of pr Pratitya Samutpada and living systems theory and, uh, has done some increase into that and was doing uh, some activist work also, um, environmental and political activist work. And at one point in her career, it really hit her what was confronting her and us on the world stage, socially, culturally, environmentally, technologically, mm -hmm. all of that, the stuff that she had been engaged with hit her like a thunderbolt and she collapsed behind her desk in tears for hours. And it, 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 it changed her. 
it changed her. And it, there's a, you know, uh, what, you know, Levin says is the strength of opening to vision, right? Strength, of, the crying is the strength of opening and allowing oneself to feel, allowing oneself to be a feedback loop in the larger whole and that you can begin to see, you know, more deeply what, what's actually manifest. And for her, that then opened up into her work, which is first she called it grief work, helping mm -hmm. people process their, their feeling about the state of the world and not hide from it as our culture trains us to do. And then later it evolved into what she calls the work that reconnects. So it's, it's not only centered in grief, but there's a, a broader project of finding our participatory place in the world. So for me, that's a way of, 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 of shifting our, our, our experience of our condition in, in the world. And there's the, the, the play of appearance and reality and, and absolute and, and relative here in that it's, it's the encounter of the whole in, you know, the Merleau-Pontian in the intertwining right. in that, in that hidden right. depth. Yeah. I, I, before layman, I just want to say that I think that's really deeply right. In fact, I'll, I'll say something bold. I think that whatever the religion that's not a religion turns out to be, it will take root if it will afford people the ability to grieve the death of God. Hmm. Nietzsche announces it, but he does not grieve it. And that is my deepest criticism of Nietzsche. That is my deepest, most profound criticism of Nietzsche. And um, I think Nietzsche is a prophet of the meaning crisis, but I don't think he appreciates um, the depth of uh, the grief that is needed. He, he, he gets it a little bit when the madman says, how will, but he turns it into how will we become worthy of this? And he makes it sort of this, like, so, you know, we have to self-aggrandize, we have to grow, we have to empower. Maybe, maybe that's the reconnection. But first, and I think opening that up, making that this aperture we look through and look at, right? The, the religion that's not a religion, its primary way, like God, the way Christianity took off with agape, the religion that's not a religion will take off when we help people grieve and I mean this respectfully. That's what grief is. When we grieve the death of God deeply and respectfully so that we can come to a place where we can be in love again and we can love reality again. Um, and maybe that's what Lehman was mentioning about the emotional thing. Um, but I think that's like, I don't think of love as an emotion. I think of love as an existential mode. So that's why. And I think of grief as an existential mode too, uh, in many ways. So I think that's profound. I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that any religion that's not a religion or any candidate for it that doesn't afford us deeply and respectfully grieving the death of God so that we can come again to fall in love with the depths of reality will fail or will turn into some kind of monster. I think the point you just, I, sorry, I just wanted to emphasize that point. I want to put a flag on it and say that point, that point to me, I think is, is central. Jordan and I have talked about it a lot, uh, 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 and, and not not in a futile manner. But I feel like we, this is one of the ways in which I'm feeling I, I'm inadequate. I, you know, I have a deep respect for grief. The what, the wisest person I met in my life said to me, "Don't get into a deep relationship to some with somebody who hasn't experienced grief, because they will do they do not have their full humanity." I have a profound respect for it, and I don't think I've adequate. Like I under I guess I get. I don't even know if I understand it well, but I at least see 
the problem that like that what you're putting your finger on that like i don't yet know if i well i know that i have not addressed it adequately see i'm fumbling here because i i deeply appreciate what you said but i do not know what i like i <laughs> I do not know if I if I'm adequate to bringing <laughs> the cognitive and conceptual resources to bear upon it. Uh, I mean, I want to keep talking about it in the hopes that the logos will catch, but but just take the fact that I'm stumbling around this, Bruce, with a lot of passion. I think that is just a that is a pivotal point, and I just wanted to really open a space around it. I think that is the most one of the most prop you know the most properly the central tasks of the religion that's not a religion. And to be able to take it profoundly seriously, I think is, uh, yeah, that's a challenge. That's, I find that a, 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 a like a just daunting challenge. Well, at, at, with the risk of sounding too agreeable, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and I, I want to thank you for fumbling because often... Uh, <laughs> In in shared rationality and virtue discussions, there's a lot of the uh, a lot of the deviant aspect. You know, the the easily marginalized aspects of humanity are often not as foregrounded as they should be. Mm. I think there's a uh, there's an attitude and a stand and a and a capacity that's needed in order to bring any of this forward. And like you said, I mean, Nietzsche is famously not great at emotion and sexuality. Right. Mm -hmm. He's got the attitude. He's got the stand. He can put it in the parable of the madman saying, look, we haven't felt this yet. Yes. yes but yes. he doesn't have the capacity to go through that. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it's it's correct to say emotion isn't quite right. Emotion is an analogy for the, the greater heart that includes all of the functions. Yeah. And there's something about the way we feel through this that's really important in order to get it underway. Like if we just go to the conceptual part and go, okay, there's an insufficiency, there's an incommensurability, we've got to turn that into a positive. In that positivity, we can find a, a tonos or a tensegrity that allows us to generate a overflowing coherence that revalidates everything. Okay, great. But that first step is to embrace the absence. Yes. Right? And that conceptual step is paralleled. Uh, there's an isomorphism at, at all the chakra levels, so to speak, in all of our yeah. functions, right? And so sorrow and tears is like that too. You go into the position of the lack. You really live and inhabit that lack. You go all the way into it. And I think yeah. one of the reasons that uh, post-modernity feels shallow and that it didn't solve the desacralization problem of modernity is that people have not gone all the way in. Yes, right? they're, they're not they're not really entering that space with all of their functions. But if they did, if you went all the way and suffered the result, that's where the turnaround is, the, the felt turnaround in all of the different functions. Yeah, I think that's extremely well said. I, I, I think that's I think you you brushed up against Nishitani's deepest critique of, uh, of Nietzsche and postmodernity as it, it was emerging. Yeah, that. Yeah, um, and, and uh, I'm I'm always I, like I had I, I didn't have to confront it myself, but I saw somebody close to me confront something something like grief, and of course I've encountered grief, and I'm like I'm always like uh, I'm always dumbfounded. That's a good word. I find myself dumb. In, in the original meaning, I have nothing to say, but also in the more colloquial meaning, 
and then and I I I I I pick up on what Bruce is saying, like like to try and like when you're with somebody that's grieving, to try and be as fully present and to participate and allow them to like participate in themselves through you. Like I, I, I sort of get a sense of that that's the main responsibility and responsiveness to it. But I find that, um, I mean, uh, we, uh, there's no cultural education that prepares us for it. And uh, I, I find both the, the flippant nihilism, well, they're, they're dead and gone, or uh, the forced smile of sort of a Christian optimism, well, they're in a better place now. <laughs> um, and and you know, it's like, I don't know if you really are you really getting comfort from that? I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I saw my extended family try that multiple times and didn't seem to work. Um, and I, and I, I guess I'm getting, again, I'm getting the same sense of, like, I, I see a lot of what's happening right now, and I'm not going to point to specific events. People know there's lots happening is acting out of an unprocessed grief um, in really profound ways. Um, I, there's other things going on, and I do not want to deny socioeconomic issues. They are, but we know that this happens even when socioeconomic issues are fairly stable for people too, because we have this happening in places, you know, like Silicon Valley, where affluence is a, a, a background condition, and yet this acting out is taking place. Uh, you know, um, it's taking place within the universities that are largely very privileged, stable. Uh, lives for people in some ways. So I, I, I like, I, I just, again, it's more of a, like a, 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 a fumbling question. Like I, I feel a deep resonance from my sense of perhaps what is needed in my ineptness for it in a individual circumstance and what the culture at, a, at large is doing. It's largely ignorant and inept, uh, but there's some intuitive sense that something more should be happening, but we don't know what it is. Sorry, I don't know if that was of any help, but I was just trying to push really deep into this. I think there's some work our whole culture has to do around allowing for those movements of existential feeling. There, there are a lot of mechanisms culturally in place that forestall or, or interrupt yeah. that process. You know, to to go fully into grief, there are so many ways that we give messages to people that they can't go there. Yes. Don't become too sad and grieve if you don't have an answer. Don't bring all this sorrow into the place if you don't already have a pre-established answer. Don't go there. You don't don't bring us down. Right. That's one thing. Don't be morbid. It's not patriotic. You know, yeah. it's not faithful to God. It, yes. You know. There's so many different ways socially and psychologically that we stop each other from going to that place. And so I think that's a deep inquiry that we need collectively in, in working through the meaning crisis. And for me, it is a spiritual practice to interrogate those interruptive mechanisms and to make a clearing, which I think Dialogo space is, a, is an ideal place for that kind of processing at that level. Um, there are also practices that we can do internally like uh, Tonglen, Tibetan Tonglen. Yeah. Which, yeah, but I think Dialogos is, is even better because it's gonna involve us 
intersubjectively in the process. I like what you said about interrogating the, what did you call them? The dismissive mechanism? You had a name for the mechanisms we're, we're interrogating. I just, I think I said disruptive or interruptive yeah. mechanisms. See, that's it, interrogating the interruptive mechanisms. That, it had nice alliteration to it too. Um, yeah, and the way that can be a proper spiritual practice. I like the way you foregrounded that, Bruce. I really like the way you foregrounded that. And I do agree with the, the deep connection to Dialogos. In fact, one of the things we're doing the workshop this weekend is maybe to get people to pay attention to what's lacking in what's coming up for them. What's like, yeah, not just what's coming up. Because often in Dialogos, people hit the aporia. And aporia is right on that place between wondering about what may come, but also grieving the lack that you've realized. Yeah, that's really, I, I just wanted to reflect. That's really good, Bruce. That's really good. It's interesting because there's been a lot of philosophy around um, accepting death as a precondition for our authenticity. And mm -hmm. that's somewhat what we're saying, but the notion of death is, is too, too monolithic and too yeah, freighted yeah. with assumed meanings to do the job here, but it's something like that. Something about limit and something about insufficiency and something about being able to take that in a positive sense, whether that's cognitively and philosophically or personally and emotionally. I think we, there's a lot of discussion around the epistemic humility that's necessary to facilitate yes. intersubjective dialogos. Yes. Right? And so that's about knowing yourself as incomplete and insufficient and delimited and understanding that also about the other. And that feeds into the whole uh, historical tradition of religious practices around humiliation, right? Some yes. get carried yes. away, but there's a sense of like the stand-up comedian has to do, you you take on the failure in yourself yeah. as an adaptive mechanism. Now, I think that's essential, right? I think uh, it's a, an absolute analogy to what we have to do in order to avoid the problems of cognitive dissonance, which is that we have to inhabit that space. We have to be there between the conflicting and overlapping interpretations so that we can uh, suffer through it and then adaptively stabilize in that space, right? If we can't inhabit cognitive dissonance, we can't build a multi-perspectival or trans-perspectival operating system for the world. Right. Yeah, so going into these spaces is key. And uh, obviously, I think the three of us need a couple of hours <laughs> to talk this through. If we're coming to the end at the moment, then I would... I just want to say that I think there's a very strong structural parallel between how we resolve the ontological problem of the absolute and the relative, how we access the emotional capacity to go through these things, uh, and how we make ourselves available in dialogue, and how I think we resolve some of the left brain, right brain imbalance. I think yeah, all yeah, of those have yeah. the same inactive shape. I agree. Yeah, I think I would very much like to come back and tie these topics together. Yeah, the um, and, and you know and and perhaps request of you to to help me sort of fumble my way around this idea about grieving properly, or or at least beginning to properly grieve the death of God, so that yeah, so that. Like I like I'm coming to the conclusion. I've 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 argued for a long time that we can't 
resolve the meaning crisis and learn unless we learn how to fall in love with being again. Uh, but I, it, I, it's like, but the the analogy to romantic relationships is becoming sort of strong in my mind that you can't move into your next romantic relationship until you've grieved the one that you that you've lost. And so I'm only proposing that as an analogy. I, I'm suspecting that while we do need the positive project of building the ecologies and practices and how do we fall in love with being again and eidetic deduction um, and, and a new way of seeing and new way, I think we need to be doing all of that. I'm not saying, but I'm just wondering if we can undertake any of that uh, and, and take it to heart that we need, we need to until we've done this other thing that Bruce has put his finger on here. Uh, 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 and the idea of, and I think you're reinforcing that well, Layman, the idea of making this uh, a locus of a set of practices, spiritual practices, I think that's bang on. I think that's right. I'd like to come back and talk about that if we can. I'd like that as well. And I think uh, astonishment and grief both they open yeah. kind of clearings that allow for a transcendence, but then also a deepened imminence. Yes. Um, and that I think there, there can and should be a whole set of practices around accessing this um, in a deep and authentic way. Um, so I, I definitely would be open to exploring that further with, with both of you. Great. That'd be wonderful. I should get going, but I wanted to, this, this has been really, really powerful for me so thank you very much gentlemen thank yeah, you very much to see you john be well yeah you too uh, so let's set up the next one uh let's set up the next one i want to keep going on this look forward to that be well <laughs>